The world mourns the sudden loss of George Cardinal Pell at the age of 81 this week. What will be his lasting legacy? Gerhard Cardinal Mueller is here to share his thoughts. And the National Catholic Register's Edward Penton and Father Joseph Fascio of Ignatius Press reflect on what the loss of Cardinal Pell means to the church. And they'll share some analysis of the explosive new book by Benedict XVI's longtime secretary, Archbishop Georg Gonswein. Nothing but the truth. The world over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. What a couple of weeks it has been. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get started. Just a week after the funeral mass of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, we mourn the loss of another towering figure in the church. Australian Cardinal George Pell passed away on January 10th at the age of 81. The former Sydney Archbishop, head of the Vatican Secretariat for the Economy, returned to his homeland to face charges of sexual abuse, charges he vehemently de denied. After serving nearly two years in prison, all of those convictions were eventually overturned by the Australian High Court in 2020. He published his prison journal in three volumes following his release. And though he was no longer a voting member of the College of Cardinals, Pell remained an enormously influential figure in Rome and in the Universal Church. Here to reflect on Cardinal Pell's unexpected passing and his legacy, I'm joined by the former prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Gerhard Cardinal Mueller. He joins us from Rome. Your Eminence, thank you for being here. I wanted you to join us to share your thoughts on the passing of Cardinal Pell. It was so unexpected, coming as it did just days after the Pope Emeritus's funeral. What will Cardinal Pell's lasting legacy be, in your estimation? Like everybody, I was very shocked when I heard in, in the morning of, of his death uh, the night uh, before because I saw him in the Holy Mass for the funeral of Benedict XVI. And uh, he, we lived in the same house. We had the same apartments in the same house. And therefore, we had a lot of contact. And uh, we worked together. We fighted together for the church. And he was a very important figure because he was uh, very clear and open and uh, was fearless. And uh, therefore, I'm, I'm sad. But at the same time, we hope that he will be a good intercessor for us. It is perhaps fitting. You mentioned a moment ago that you and, and Cardinal Pell fought for the church. Um, in his final column published by the UK Spectator just after his death, uh, there is a scathing critique of the Synod on Synodality's working document, which we've discussed before, entitled Enlarge the Space of Your Tent. I want to read this to you and get your reaction, uh, Cardinal Mueller. Uh, Cardinal Pell writes... The Catholic Synod of Bishops is now busy constructing what they think of as God's dream of synodality. Unfortunately, this divine dream has developed into a toxic nightmare, despite the bishops' professed good intentions. 
because of the differences of opinion on abortion, contraception, the ordination of women to the priesthood, and homosexual activity, some felt that no definitive positions on these issues can be established or proposed. This is also true of polygamy and divorce and remarriage. What is one to make of this potpourri, this outpouring of New Age goodwill? It is not a summary of Catholic faith or New Testament teaching. It is incomplete, hostile in significant ways to the apostolic tradition, and nowhere acknowledges the New Testament as the Word of God, normative for all teaching on faith and morals. The Old Testament is ignored, patriarchy rejected, and the Mosaic Law, including the Ten Commandments, is not acknowledged. Uh, Cardinal Mueller, uh, when you read that, uh, what did you make of those assessments? Yeah, we debated uh, some hours about this uh, text and uh, these thoughts, and I am absolutely on this uh, line. We have, the, I, we have the same meaning about this subject, about this document preparation, so-called preparation document. is not a document of the magisterium, but is a preparation document, and the um, the lines and the thoughts are absolutely in the, in the approach, not Catholic. The Catholic faith begins by the revelation and the presence of the revelation in the Holy Scripture and the apostolic tradition and the magisterium of the council of the popes. And it's not a Gnostic um, new um, pattern. And, and and a paradigm as it is uh, seen in this uh, preparation document has nothing to do with the renewal of the church in Jesus Christ, but is only a shift to a not Catholic understanding of revelation and of the uh, church. Mm -hmm. Cardinal Mueller, we're, we're learning that Cardinal Pell's funeral mass will be held on Saturday, uh, January 14th, celebrated by Cardinal Giovanni Battista Rey. Uh, meanwhile, a secret memo has been circulating since last spring, Lent of last year, that openly criticizes the pontificate of Pope Francis, and uh, Sandro Magister, the Vaticanista, is attributing this memo to Cardinal George Pell. I'm going to read this to you because it's, it's compelling. I mean, it, when I read this, a, as I read it, I, I thought I could see George Pell writing this, but this is what he said. Commentators of every school, if for different reasons, agree that this pontificate is a disaster in many and most respects, a catastrophe. He goes on to say, the Christocentrality of teaching is being weakened. Christ is being moved from the center. Now, this memo appeared earlier this year under a non diplom. Um, your reaction to this, it really does address what uh, Cardinal Pell talks about, weakened preaching of the gospel, a precariousness of the Holy See finances. Uh, your take on this and how it's being received, I'm wondering, by your brother cardinals. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the author but these are fluent ideas and and uh, and um, thinkings of, of of some people, and uh, we have to react to the content of these um, reproaches, and uh, we have also to underline the cardinals, the bishops, and every uh, body in uh, the church, the Christocentric 
basis of our Christian faith. The church is not an NGO uh, or um, paid by by Soros or or, or Bill Gates or this. Uh, uh, making the world better institutions and so uh, but uh, the church is instituted is created by Jesus Christ himself he is the head of the church and we have to follow him and not uh, these strange ideas uh, of that mm. people we want to make a new reset uh, a great reset of, of the world nobody can be the redeemer of the world without Jesus Christ mm. without God and therefore uh, I can under, uh, I can also accept it that it's very important that we have to return to a Christocentric um, preaching in the church and to be very aware um, that the church is a sacrament for the salvation of the world in Jesus Christ mm -hmm. and not um, only uh, welfare organization for the climate change or for all these questions uh, which are belonging to the politics and to the society. Cardinal Mueller, before we run out of time, I want to get your take on the lasting legacy of Pope Benedict XVI. I mean, he chose you to run the congregation that he had led for 25 years. What was the greatest gift of Benedict XVI to the church and how should he be remembered? Yeah, there's a lot of great, great gifts. I think he is uh, Augustinus Redivibus, a new Pope uh, Leo the Great. Um, and he led us 16, 16 very big uh, volumes of his complete uh, writings with nearly 2,000 uh, pages about all the big challenges of the Catholic faith. And he was a great, a great dialogue with all the modern and important philosophers of the world and, and of the modern uh, world. But I think um, we need a key, a key word or a key book for the, for the hermeneutic, for entering in his very, very large work. And I think that this is his book about Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, which is a mm. condensation of his spiritual and theological thinking, a personal approach to Jesus Christ. And also the, the great encyclicas he mm. wrote about God is love, about uh, um, the hope and uh, the, the faith and the social dimension of our Christian existence as Eucharist. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore is, is a great, great important legacy your Eminence Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, I thank you for your time and your clarity. Thank you very much, Raymond. To continue our discussion on the legacy of the late George Cardinal Pell and with analysis of this blockbuster new book by Benedict XVI's former secretary, Archbishop Georg Ganswein, I'm joined by Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Register, Edward Penton, and Cardinal George Pell's publisher at Ignatius Press, Father Joseph Fessio. Thank you both for being here. Um, I want to jump right in, Father Fessio. Uh, you worked closely with Cardinal Pell for so long. You published the prison journals and other titles. What does the passing of Cardinal Pell mean to you personally and to the church as a whole? 
Well, it's a loss of a great friend personally and for the church as well. Mm. When Benedict went to his reward, I did ha I had no sorrow whatsoever. He'd completed his life. He was on the road to dying. Uh, he was 95 years old. He was ready for the reward. He was going to a place which is far superior to where we are now. And the solemn response for that day, December 31st, was let the heavens rejoice and earth be glad. With Carl Pell was different. Uh, he died on my birthday, which allowed me to say I'm older than he because he's 81, I'm now 82. But I, I believed my I believe he still had part of his mission to accomplish. But my ways are not God's ways. So God decided differently. But he was very influential, very active, you know, even in his uh, state where he was, was hard for me to walk. He, he was not in really good health. But he still had, I thought, work to do. Yeah. But I'm sure that he and Benedict are now rejoicing up there and interceding for us. They see even more clearly than uh, than they saw when they were here. Yeah. Edward, what was the mood in Rome when the story of uh, Cardinal Pell's passing began to spread? I mean, this was totally unexpected. Yes, I mean, it was a lot of shock, Raymond. I think, uh, I mean, he seemed so alive. I, I had dinner with him only a month ago, and he seemed totally fine he just he told me he was going for this hip replacement um and so we all knew that was coming uh but he was in otherwise very good spirits very good health and so um yes it's come as a great a great shock to many people uh, i want to continue on this and we we touched on this a moment ago with cardinal Mueller. uh cardinal pell just before he passed away he wrote his final column in the UK Spectator. It was just published, and it's a scathing critique of the Synod on Synodality. Uh, Father Fessio, your take on this, and um, it shows you that fighting spirit really never left him, and he was always a man of the written word. He wrote columns when he was archbishop and books. Uh, your, your take on that and what influence it might have going into this Synod? I, I think that Cardinal Mueller used a good word there, fearless. And I would say, you know, with Jesus, what did you go out to the desert to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Not Colonel George Pell. He was fair. He had a great sense of humor. But he was honest and clear-sighted and quite intelligent. And so he spoke so clearly. But so many of the church have been thinking in their hearts but have not been able to express as well as he did. So that was one of his great gifts was to be able to express the, the, the real sense of feeling, the real sense of faith of the common people. And he did that in that article, as he did in his other articles. Ed, there is that, we learned this week, that this secret memo or um, the anonymous memo that's been floating around Rome since last Lent, um, it's being attributed now to Cardinal Pell. And it specifically critiques Pope Francis's pontificate, calling it a disaster, catastrophic, uh, how is this being received, and might that have any influence on the upcoming uh, funeral arrangements for Cardinal Pell? Well, I don't think there's a lot of surprise that it's been revealed as him, because when you read the, the memo, it's a lot of the, in there about the Vatican finances, and it's, we knew it was written by a cardinal, so uh, who knows about uh, Vatican finances in such detail as a cardinal? Well, it's Cardinal Pell, and so it's not a great shock, but <clears throat> I think, um, yes, I think there's a lot in there which... Uh, which also, um, you know, he's he's he would speak about, you know, off the record. I mean, there were things which were a great concern to him. Um, things like the the Pope being silent about uh, 
you know, uh, statements being put out by cardinals wanting to change the church's teaching on homosexuality, for example, or, or the German bishops um, sort of getting away with what they're getting away with without the Pope saying anything. Uh, the, the, the Pachamama was a great concern of his too. Um, and of course, the lawlessness that's, that's in the Vatican, I mean, that was something that was particularly of concern to him, given given the experience he had uh, of, of lawlessness and, and unjust treatment. Um, and he was willing to defend someone like uh, Cardinal Betchu, who, even though he disagreed with him and, and thought him, uh, you know, problematic in terms of Vatican finances, uh, was not treated well and not right. given due process right. by the Pope. And so um, these were all very strong concerns of his, and I think he felt he needed to put it out, yeah. but of course um, wasn't willing to yeah. do so uh, with his name attached. Well, and Ed, you're right. When you read it, it suddenly becomes very clear who's writing it. The um, the financial corruption that he discovered, and you're referencing the four interventions that Pope Francis made into the trial, that financial corruption trial uh, that Cardinal Beshu is, is, is wrapped up in, where he simply waived rules because he was the pope and could do so. And in the estimation of Cardinal Pell, if indeed he wrote this memo, um, it, it was unjust. And there are other things he writes here about uh, the, the, that the church is weaker than it was 50 years ago. The next pope must understand the secret of Christian and Catholic vitality comes from fidelity to the teaching of Christ and Catholic practices. And Father Fezio, he writes this, the Holy Father has little support among seminarians and young priests and wide disaffection exists in the Vatican Curia. What did you think when you read that? Uh, I, I think it's pure speculation as to whether he's the author or not. Uh, he said enough things publicly that we can understand what he, his views were on these things. Uh, I will take a said contra on this. Uh, George Pell was a loyal son of the church. He would not publicly criticize the Holy Father. And I doubt that he would put his signature to something or even anonymously that would be a public criticism. So maybe he wrote it, maybe he didn't, but in a certain sense, it's irrelevant. The question is, is it true? Now, among seminarians, I can tell you from my contact with them and with Fran Meyer and Phil Lawler and others that there are many, many John Paul II seminarians. There are many, many Benedict seminarians. No one has ever discovered yet a Francis seminary. He's, he's not inspired young men to the priesthood so far. Now, that may change. Uh, but uh -huh. certainly there is uh, disagio, uh, discomfort with his ambiguity. He says many, many wonderful things. He's never explicitly gone against church teaching, but he always is speaking right. in this ambiguous way, and that, that lends uh, comfort and aid to the enemy, really. So that's a problem. Uh, before I go, I must get your response to this explosive new book by Benedict's former secretary, former head of the papal household, Archbishop Georg Gonswain. It's called Nothing But the Truth, My Life Beside Benedict XVI. Now, it makes some interesting observations about tensions between Pope Francis and the Pope Emeritus. It's currently available only in Italian. We did get a little translation. I will read this to you. Um, Ed, I'm going to ask you to react to this. Uh, Georg Gonswain writes... On the 16th of July, 2021, Benedict XVI discovered, leafing through that afternoon's Lisbeth Romano, the Vatican paper, that Pope Francis had released 
the motu proprio traditionis custodis, on the use of the Roman liturgy prior to the 1970 reform. It limited the Latin mass use that Benedict had liberalized. When I asked him for his opinion, he reiterated <clears throat> that the reigning pontiff is responsible for decisions like this and must act according to what he considers to be the good of the church. But on a personal level, he saw it a definite change of course and considered it a mistake as it jeopardized the attempt at pacification that had been made 14 years earlier. Benedict in particular felt it was wrong to prohibit the celebration of mass in the ancient rite in parish churches, as it is always dangerous to put a group of faithful in a corner, thus making them feel persecuted and inspiring them the feeling of having to safeguard their own identity at all costs in the face of the enemy. Now, uh, Ed Ganswain said in a recent TV interview that reading this broke Benedict's heart. Your reaction and any repercussions in Rome, any reaction in Rome to this? Yes, well, just to, to clarify, I think the German translation was it, it hurt him in the heart. I mean, we don't actually say that, but it wasn't quite as strong as breaking his heart. But it, at any rate, it was something he was very um, disappointed with, with and uh, he did think it was a mistake. Um, and he also, the interesting thing is that he, he first of all heard about it in Nosferatu Romano. He never, he was never notified about it, even though it, it, it supposedly abrogated Simorum Pontificum, which was his apostolic letter on this. So, so yes, there, there was that, but, um, but I think he, he found it, um, uh, I think Benedict was was surprised by it, and I think um, yes, he he thought it was a mistake. I think the reaction in Rome is that it's it's not really a surprise that he had that reaction, um, and also the, I think it says in the book that it remains a mystery why uh, the survey that was put out by the Vatican, the CDF, um, to get bishops' opinions on uh, on the um, adoption of Samorum Pontificum in that in their diocese, uh, that's never been disclosed, and I I think he he wondered why that wasn't the case. Um, what we know is that um, a lot of bishops were either favourable to uh, the traditional mass or were indifferent to it, um, and not many were opposed to it. So, um, so it it's, it's, uh, it's, remains a mystery why that why we still why we still haven't seen the results of that survey, and, and the Pope Pope Benedict seemed to agree with that. Father Fessio, it's interesting in that memo that uh, again anonymously written, but now attributed to. Uh, uh, Cardinal Pell, he says the next pope has to normalize the situation with traditional um, Catholics, uh, traditionalists, that they should be regularized. Um, did you ever speak to Pope Benedict about traditionis custodis? Does that seem no, like an I, accurate take, as Ganswein describes it? Well, yes, I, I read <clears throat> Ganswein's book, the, the, the Italian edition that is out. If it is out, I, I read it before it came out. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, papal gossip in there. And there's also <clears throat> a very strong critique, I think, unfair of Carlos Seurat with respect to that book from the depth of our heart. But that particular passage which you read, Sinone vero e ben trovato, is in Italian. It's not true. It was well created because I'm sure that was Benedict's reaction. But notice how he placed it. He's not going to criticize publicly, but personally, he thinks it's a mistake. He's not speaking as Pope now. He's speaking as Pope Emeritus. And so he's got a right to his opinions on things, but he never wanted to make things public mm -hmm. if it would in any way call into question the authority of the Pope. So Benedict was a, mm -hmm. a humble man, a man of restraint, and this is just another sign 
Mm -hmm. Let's move on to Amoris Laetitia and the, the dubia, the questions that those four cardinals posed to Pope Francis about clarification regarding communion for divorced Catholics who were remarried without an annulment. Now, according to Ganswein, Benedict was shocked that Francis declined to answer those cardinals. Ganswein writes, his silence regarding this matter became rigorous when the dubia letter which the four cardinals, Walter Brandmuller, Raymond Burke, Carlo Caffara, and Joaquin, uh, Joaquin uh, Meisner had sent to Pope Francis in September of 2016 was made public, circulating it after they had received no response for a couple of months. None of them ever had a chance to speak to the Pope Emeritus about it, neither at that time nor afterward, when in the spring of 2017, the cardinals returned to the charge and asked Pope Francis for a clarification audience. Benedict was only humanly surprised at the absence of any hint of a reply from the pontiff, despite the fact that Francis normally showed himself willing to meet and talk to anyone. Ed, was Benedict's reaction to the Pope's silence surprising uh, to you or to anyone in the Vatican? I thought what was interesting about this was that um, Benedict never um, had a chance, or the cardinals, the cardinals of the Dubia never had a chance to speak to him about it, um, either, you know, soon after or, or later. Um, and I thought that was quite, quite strange in a way that they were never given that opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I think, um, I think otherwise it was, it was rather unsurprising that that I would say. Father Fezio, I want to get your take on the passage about Ganswain's own dismissal from the papal household. Now, this is in connection to something you brought up a moment ago, uh, a, a foreword that Benedict had written with Cardinal Seraf for his book. Um, quote, after those torrid days of controversy surrounding Cardinal Seraf's book on Monday the 20th, I asked Pope Francis if I could speak to him. He gave me an appointment for late morning at the end of the audiences. I gave him in detail the details about what had happened and asked his advice on how to act in the future, since it was not always easy for me to succeed in preventing problems like the one that had just occurred. He looked at me with a serious expression and said in surprise, from now on, stay at home. Accompany Benedict, who needs you, and become a shield, essentially, to, to the Pope. Um, your, your reaction to that, uh, Father Fessio, he said he felt like a haft prefect between the two popes after that episode. Yes, well, I mean, I've known Georg Gensman for quite some time, and he's been somewhat friendly to us in the Nations Press. He's the one that suggested we do Paul Body's book on Our Lady Guadalupe. Uh, and, mm -hmm. of course, Pope Benedict had a great and high regard for him. But at the same time, uh, there's a curial view here that you have to be careful. Anything which might make it seem as if Benedict was criticizing the pope uh, and so it was Genswein who was more concerned about this book, I think, than Benedict was. But the fact is, and we published it in English, it's called From the Death of Our Heart. There is a, there's two main chapters, one entirely written by Benedict, and he told Seurat, you can do whatever you want with it. Second chapter, written by Carl Seurat, and then Seurat drafted the introduction and conclusion using the word we, we this, we that. And he had Benedict mm -hmm. review it, Benedict accepted it, and even made some changes to it. So that book is a co-authored book. It has two authors. It has Pope Benedict and Carlos Seurat. And all this disturbance about, oh, we can't put Benedict's name there. It'll seem like it's criticizing the Pope. Even if it were criticizing the Pope, 
I mean, are we saying that Paul can't stand up to Peter and criticize him publicly? But it wasn't a criticism of the Pope. It was a defense of the church's teaching on celibacy of the priesthood, which both Carlos Sra and Pope Benedict hold so dear, and rightly so. It's a jewel. Yeah. It's a crown jewel of the priesthood. Ed, it's clear that uh, Georg Gonswein, Archbishop Gonswein, was in a difficult position, caught between two masters, if you will, um, and he's trying to parse his way through it. I'm more focused on, and the thing that stood out to me was not the book or who wrote what. The real part of this was um, the, the way he was treated by Pope Francis, frankly, on an administrative level, which we have seen again and again. People summarily dismissed, priests, archbishops, bishops with no explanation in South America. That seems to me the more important takeaway from this episode. Yes, it is. And uh, that, that seems to be the way the Pope handles it. He tends to um, not dismiss them totally. They'll keep, he keeps them in position, but gives them nothing to do or, or just lets them je slowly just to be dismissed. And that's why um, mm -hmm. Archbishop Genswein had to keep coming back to him, saying, well, can I have it, my job back? Instead of Pope Francis saying straightforwardly, well, no, you've, you've essentially been sacked. Didn't Benedict even write to Pope Francis asking him to restore uh, Genswein? Yes, he did. He wrote to him, uh, I think, soon after, in, in January 2020, uh, wrote quite a long letter, uh, actually begging him to clarify, begging Pope Francis to clarify the situation about uh, what happened and so that, um, you know, they could go forward. And again, you know, it shows Benedict's willingness to always be unifying and try to find um, common ground and and bring peace to the situation. We shall leave it there, yeah. gentlemen. Thank you both for being here, for your reflections, your insight. Ed Penton, Father Joseph Fessio, thank you so much. Regardless of who said what or contemporary controversies, I think it's important to focus on the man George Cardinal Pell was. Here are some outstanding clips of our interviews, moments where he discusses his imprisonment and how he maintained faith throughout that process. We talked about his prison journals. Listen to these moments. 2017, Cardinal George Pell left the Vatican Secretariat for the Economy to face outrageous charges of sexual molestation allegedly occurring in his Melbourne Cathedral in 1996. After a mistrial in 2018, a second trial unanimously convicted him, and he was sentenced to six years in prison. Cardinal Pell was then incarcerated for 404 days until Australia's High Court unanimously acquitted and released him this past April. Joining us to discuss his new book, Prison Journal, Volume 1, The Cardinal Makes His Appeal, chronicling his first five months behind bars and more is his eminence, George Cardinal Pell. Your eminence, thank you for being here. Uh, Raymond, it's uh, a, a pleasure. I've got... Uh, very fond memories of EWTN. Well, thank you for joining us. Now, Your Eminence, you wrote every day in prison as a discipline. Was it always your intention that you would publish this journal? Um, not necessarily. Um, I didn't write uh, f primarily for it to be uh, published. I was aware that I would uh, offer it for publication. Uh, because it went in three or four different directions, I wasn't uh, exactly sure whether all of it would be suitable or it would have to be edited or cut up into sections. Uh, so I was aware of the possibility, but uh, that wasn't the primary concern. 
Hmm. At one point you write, quote, my fate has serious repercussions for the church, especially in Australia, but more widely because of my advocacy of crucifixion Christianity. There seems little doubt that my social conservatism and advocacy of the Judeo-Christian ethic have sharpened popular hostility, especially among the militant secularists. I believe in God's providence. I never chose this situation and worked hard to avoid it, but here I am, and I must strive to do God's will. What did you think God's will was for you at that time? And did you ever think you might not be released? Well, I'm sure, I was quite sure that God's will was for me to uh, uh, go ahead with a bit of discipline and uh, dignity and uh, make uh, the best of my situation. And uh, once you accepted your lowly status uh, as a prisoner, that uh, nothing happens uh, quickly, you're completely at the beck and call uh, of others, it's not uh, too bad a life. Uh, I said once or twice it was a little bit like a, um, a worldly retreat because I had, a, uh, uh, I had my own television set and a kettle, which uh, at least in most of the retreats I've done, uh, I've never had. Um, I, was, uh, I was sure I was going to get out, even if it was after three or four years of the six years, but I was never mm. certain that I was going to win my appeal. Uh, I, I thought I'd win the state appeal, and so I was absolutely flabbergasted uh, when uh, that was uh, voted down by uh, two of the judges. So I was aware that these things uh, weren't always decided on, uh, on logic or on the evidence. Your Eminence, when you first, when these charges first dropped, you could have declared diplomatic immunity and stayed at the Vatican. I mean, you were, you, you at that time had a Vatican passport. I assume you have one now. Why didn't you just stay in Rome and That's avoid correct. these charges? Oh, because I was innocent. And uh, uh, that would have been very bad for me, very bad for the church. So I was frightened uh, uh, to face up to my uh, accusers uh, and the accusations. Uh, I never for a moment the thought that I would lurk in the Vatican um, uh, avoiding the charges. I went home to prove my innocence, and that's exactly what I did. Mind you, it was a, it was a long, drawn-out uh, business, longer than I would have liked. I'll say. I'll say. Look, now, now you write in the book that the pedophilia crisis remains the greatest blow the church has suffered in Australia. Now, you were responsible, Your Eminence, for setting up the Melbourne response in your home country, which was a system for victims to be able to report cases of abuse. Looking at the number of sex abuse cases globally and the cover-ups and situations like McCarrick, what should the Vatican be doing now to stop this and end this crisis once and for all? Well, um, I can only speak uh, primarily about Australia. And mm -hmm. we broke the back of this problem in as much as we stopped the crimes in the middle of uh, the 90s. And this was acknowledged uh, by the Royal Commission. The Royal mm -hmm. Commission that looked into the terrible stories of cover-up and abuse uh, in Australia uh, drew on almost no cases uh, from this uh, century. So it probably differs from country to country, but the, uh, the church, uh, certainly in Australia, I would think in the United States, 
has uh, the basic, the correct uh, procedures in place, and uh, we have to implement them uh, justly and um, compassionately. So uh, we're on the right track in a way that we weren't uh, 30 years ago. We, we dealt with the problem the way the rest of the world did, at least in the English-speaking world, and that is cover up these things. We weren't alone in doing that. And I think we made a mistake uh, in Australia when dealing with the Royal Commission uh, not to have uh, pointed out, uh, not to have made the point I've just made, that we broke the back of the problem in as much as we stopped the crimes occurring from the middle of the 90s. Uh, Keith Windshuttle, a former Australian Broadcasting Corp board member and author of a book about your trial, has warned that, quote, any one of us could now be accused by strangers of reprehensible behavior and then find the weight of the nation's structures of law, government, and public opinion piled on top of us. The whole case was based on a fundamental overturning of traditions of law. There wasn't a presumption of innocence. There was a presumption of guilt. Do you agree with that appraisal of your case, the way it proceeded? And do you feel, Cardinal Pell, that you were a scapegoat for the crimes of the church and the way it dealt with abuse in the past? Uh, I do think uh, Winshuttle's book is a very fine book. I have uh, read most of it, if not uh, all of it. I think his uh, diagnosis is uh, correct. If uh, public opinion is strongly against uh, a certain group, you know, I think it was an example of identity politics, uh, certainly of a spokesperson uh, for that group, um, it can make it uh, very, very d difficult. I mean, I think the prosecutors in my case uh, refused uh, on three occasions to take the, the case forward. Uh, and that, uh, I believe, I might be wrong, was eventually done by the, uh, uh, by the police. So uh, uh, was I a scapegoat? Um, to some extent. Uh, I believe that uh, in the courts, uh, some of my friends... Uh, have uh, reported that uh, bystanders, some people have written to me about conversations they've had, and uh, sometimes the conversation went like this. Yes, he might be innocent. He might, he might in fact, have not uh, done these things, but the church deserves to be punished uh, for the mm -hmm. way they've dealt so badly with this, uh, with this crisis. And in many cases, we did deal badly until... Uh, the early 90s or the mid-90s. Yeah. No, it, it, it's... I remember when we had individuals who were partial to your case and, and believed in your innocence, and they would come and report on various steps in the trial and throughout the process, and we got ferociously attacked by uh, some of your countrymen in the media for how dare you have this man on, how dare you suggest that he's innocent, Cardinal Pell is a guilty man. I mean, the, the, the media pressure here was intense. You had to feel some of that even in prison. Uh, yes, to some extent I, I did, but to, to some extent uh, I was used to it over the years. And um, uh, I'm also very clear, clearer than ever, uh, that we must buckle to, to that sort of pressure. We've got to stand up to it. Uh, we have to make our case uh, cogently, uh, courteously, 
uh, with uh, reason. And uh, as I uh, said, it is uh, a question uh, of identity politics. And a lot of those uh, people don't appeal to reason. Uh, they make no. uh, their decision and then condemn uh, a person with a different point of view and all uh, the other people who hold that point of view too. It, uh, mm -hmm. it represents a decline in public life, the, the decline uh, in rational uh, discussion. In your new book, Prison Journal, Volume 2, you write about how someone had a dream and they contacted you with it, and they predicted that you would be free. You write in your diary, as someone who's innately skeptical but believes strongly in the reality of the supernatural, I would have been surprised if the situation panned out as predicted. I knew, too, from my reading, of the slightest number of inexplicable events and coincidences, whether they be paranormal or supernatural, but that even in miraculous apparitions, e.g. Fatima, the specifics, the detailed predictions can be wrong. How did you feel the moment you learned that you had lost that appeal in, in August of 2019? What was the first thing that went through your mind? How did I feel? Um, well, enormously uh, uh, disappointed. Uh, I thought it was uh, logically uh, inexplicable. Um, there, I wasn't inclined to doubt it or think it was... Uh, uh, surreal, but it was intensely uh, disappointing, and uh, it was one of a series of reverses. So I, I must confess, at that stage, I I didn't uh, estimate the the judicial processes very highly at all. Hmm. How did prayer sustain you through this period, Your Eminence? It had to be very difficult, uh, considering. I mean, you knew you were innocent, and yet this steamroller kept kept moving forward? Well, um, I, I re received an enormous amount of prayer support. Uh, I had so many people praying for me that I wondered whether it was overkill. So I, I remember praying to the good God to say, well, look, there might be too many people praying for me, but you can redistribute uh, uh, these things. Um, I was... Uh, I followed a common sense daily uh, rule of life. Uh, my prayers, uh, exercise, uh, sleep, uh, watch the television, read, uh, wrote. So the uh, grace builds on nature, and um, with a bit of uh, common sense uh, living, that uh, better helps you maintain your uh, uh, equilibrium. And I think undoubtedly... Mm. Uh, all the prayers and the knowledge that I had so much support, that was a stabilizing factor too. Hmm. One of the peculiarities of your prosecution was the total media blackout imposed by the court. It forbade coverage of your case. Now, they claim they did so to prevent news of one trial affecting the jury pool or the outcome of the other trial. You were being tried in two localities. What does this say about the Australian judicial system? Well, I think it was a, a reasonable, uh, um, a, a reasonable decision. It didn't work to my advantage, because no. uh, once the facts of uh, the accusations uh, became public, uh, public scepticism grew um, enormously. But I had um, uh, the threat of uh, uh, another trial, and they didn't want to prejudice my chances there. Now, uh, those. Uh, those cases were uh, 
A good number of them were thrown out by the magistrate. The others were thrown out uh, by, the, uh, by the judge as not worthy of uh, uh, going forward. But the, the basic decision is explicable in terms of normal judicial practice. But it didn't work out in my favor. While you were in prison, the German bishops launched their synodal way. Uh, what did you think when you heard that they were preparing to discuss for two years four main issues? The way power is exercised in the church, sexual morality, the priesthood, and the role of women? Well, I, I think the, the German church is uh, at a crossroads. They have to mm. choose uh, to be servants and defenders and teachers of the apostolic tradition. So they stand under the word of God, under revelation, under the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, or they choose another path and say that we are the masters of that tradition and we can change uh, the teaching. Um, now, I don't know whether abortion and euthanasia are on the books. Uh, I hope not. But uh, certainly they want to change the teaching on, uh, some do, on sexual morality by blessing homosexual unions. Uh, they object to the tough teachings of Jesus on uh, adultery and against remarriage. Uh, they seem to have a different list of uh, qualities that are necessary for the fruitful reception of the sacraments, different from that of St. Paul. And some of them would uh, want to have an order of women priests. Now, uh, we can't have mm -hmm. a German set of the Ten Commandments, and we uh, can't have a uh, a set of uh, women priests in Germany and nowhere, nowhere else. So these things um, uh, have to be uh, have to be resolved, and uh, I, I think the uh, situation should be explained as as basically as uh, I have explained it, so that people just know what is happening. Mm -hmm. I recently asked Cardinal Mueller, who was on the program, his thoughts on what's happening in the German church. And, you know, they're defying the Vatican in so many areas. Here's what he had to say. The Catholic Church or the Christians, all the Christians have to follow the word of God. And this is a form of, of heresy, not only of, of schism, but also of, of heresy. Your reaction, Cardinal Pell, I mean, a record number of, of Catholics have abandoned the church uh, in recent years, 272,000-plus people leaving in 2019. Uh, your thoughts on whether the Vatican should intervene at this point? Well, the role of the papacy is to maintain church unity, and it's to maintain church unity around uh, the teachings uh, of... Uh, of Jesus, and uh, uh, whether it will, whether they will cross the Rubicon, uh, as uh, they say, uh, I'm not sure they will. I think if people go into schism, they would uh, lose the the right to church taxes. Um, I I don't know uh, uh, how it will be resolved. I hope the worst uh, will be uh, avoided. But the role of the, the papacy, and it's a concern for all the bishops, because we're concerned, mm -hmm. first of all, with our own church, but with the universal church, uh, the role of the papacy is to uh, maintain unity. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I want to get your reaction to the reports that uh, we're reading in Italian periodicals that the Pope may undo Samorum Pontificum, Benedict XVI's motto proprio, allowing wide use of the old Roman rite of the Mass, the extraordinary rite, at the discretion of the priest. Uh, would it be a good idea to curtail the uh, celebration of that, the old rite, the extraordinary rite, or might it create more division? I think it would be um, uh, most unfortunate. It would be uh, counterproductive. Um, it's been uh, an area of unexpected growth. growth. Uh, many people are very uh, attached to that uh, beautiful uh, form of uh, worship. Prison Journal, Volume 3, The High Court Frees an Innocent Man, is the final installment of the daily record you kept during your incarceration. It really covers the period from December 2019 to April of 2020, the day after your release. Now, you were released during Holy Week, just days before Easter. How did prayer sustain you, particularly since you were not permitted to offer Mass in prison? And give me a sense of the importance of the Church's liturgical calendar during that time for you. Well, I became aware of in a new way of the importance of the church's calendar because I was watching a couple of very fine uh, evangelical preachers, Americans, uh, Joseph Prince and Joel Osteen, and they follow no liturgical calendar whatsoever, whereas it's been part of my life always to have uh, Christmas and Lent and Easter and uh, Pentecost. Uh, I'm a, a Christian, I'm a believer, I'm a Catholic priest, and one of the uh, activities we believe uh, is important is prayer. Uh, we, we pray to praise God. We pray for strength. We pray that we'll be able, we will be able to forgive. We pray that we, we will be able to uh, put up with uh, uh, misfortunes and accept uh, them and fight against them in a Christian uh, spirit. So we, we don't just pray when we feel like it, because if you're a person like me, on many occasions, you don't particularly feel like it. We pray because mm -hmm. we should. It's a duty to our good God, and that brings its, uh, brings its own rewards. It, it brings a, mm. a peace of heart and a, a steadiness. Um, mm. So one conclusion that I'm repeating as I go around is that... Um, Catholicism works. The Christian mix works. The Christian truths bring human fulfillment. And um, the whole secularist program is not bringing us a better way of life. It's destructive. They're, they're, they're wreckers with um, drugs and alcohol and uh, pornography and broken marriages and abortions and that. These are not bringing uh, uh, peace to people. Uh, they're often imprisoning them in uh, vice-like uh, uh, habits, not making them happy. The, the Christian way of life is liberating. It comes at a price. Yeah. It needs self-discipline and perseverance. Mm -hmm. We often fall, but it's liberating. 
While you were in prison, and it's interesting you mentioned this whole concept of uh, imprisonment in the spiritual sense, this COVID pandemic spread throughout the world while you were incarcerated. You write about the spread of the, the COVID uh, virus throughout volume three while you were in isolation. Given the flaws in the Australian justice system that you encountered directly, what are your thoughts on your government's heavy-handed approach to dealing with COVID? Are civil liberties being trampled upon in your estimation? Um, it varies very much from state to state, something uh, as it does uh, in this country. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a new premier in uh, New South Wales, and he's opened things up, and that increased the pressure on all the states to do so. I think, especially in the state of uh, uh, Victoria, where I was imprisoned, the uh, mm -hmm. regime has been very, very excessively uh, fierce and strict. I think a real encroachment on uh, human liberty. And I'm sad that mm -hmm. my fellow Australians haven't been more resistant to these uh, encroachments on their liberty. Hmm. At the end of the volume, you write, and I want to end with this, you write, I hope that these pages will be helpful religiously and socially to more than a few adults, be they Catholic or non-Catholic, believer or agnostic. After all, Christ rode into Jerusalem on his donkey. What do you want readers to take away from this volume three in particular, and really the entire prison journal canon? What's the lesson here? Um, well, two uh, perhaps two lessons. Uh, it could be, and I hope, that uh, throughout the diaries there is something there that will be a, a consolation to people who are going through their own troubles. And many people in society mm. have troubles uh, much more and much worse uh, than I encountered when he, I was in jail. And then um, the other lesson is one that I've, uh, I have pointers I've made already, uh, and that is that... Um, I believe that uh, the uh, Christian, the basic Christian teachings are not only true, but they are life-giving. And uh, we believe in mm. life after death, reward for good, punishment uh, for evil. But um, the Christian teachings are life-giving uh, in the mm. here and now in our, uh, in our daily living. And that's a, mm. an important uh, truth to, to realize, especially... Uh, when we're aware uh, of the, say, the restrictions that follow from, from the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Well, Your, Your Eminence, uh, Cardinal George Pell, I thank you so much for being here. And I have to say, having read all three of these journals, it's a very serene, almost retreat-like meditation. Uh, at a time when you were unjustly imprisoned, you had to be infuriated on a certain level. But very little of that bitterness uh, bleeds through in the book, I have to say. Which, I, but I, you know, I was infuriated for you as I read as I read it. Um, but it it, it has a, a beautiful serenity, and I really think speaks to exactly what you're saying. Catholicism works, and uh, th this is what not only delivered you, but uh, I think helped you hold it together while you were there, unjustly in prison for crimes you didn't commit. That's true, uh, Raymond, and thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. May George Cardinal Pell rest in peace. It is so hard losing not only towering figures, but friends. I felt that way about dear Benedict XVI and certainly 
Cardinal George. Each had a confident, intelligent faith and a buoyant spirit that is so needed among the dreary, sterile, passionless, confusing voices I see in so many parts of the church and the world today. May their example and words endure and inspire us, and may they move others to follow them in this exciting journey of faith. That, I think, could be the best tribute to both of these giants. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. May George Cardinal Pell rest in peace. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.